Hello, and welcome back to the Perspectives in History podcast. I'm your host, Willem Connor. Thank you very much for listening, as always. Previously, in our series on Girolamo Savonarola, we discussed the imprisonment, interrogation, and torture of Savonarola and his two companions, Friar Domenico de Pescia and Friar Silvestro Marufi. The three monks had been arrested by Florentine authorities on March 19, 1498, in the wake of a violent clash between pro- and anti-Savonarola civilians at the monastery of San Marco. Savonarola gave himself over to the authorities in order to prevent further bloodshed, even if he must have known that this sacrifice would cost him his life. The executive body of the Republic of Florence, the Signoria, was fully composed of men of the anti-Savonarola faction known as the Arabiati. These men were determined to have the troublesome friar put to death once and for all, but in order to pass such a sentence, they first had to acquire evidence of his wrongdoing. Although Savonarola was formally arrested on charges of heresy and abetting a schism within the Catholic Church, the Florentines were far more interested in his political crimes, specifically his alleged plot to overthrow the Florentine government by armed revolt. So, as was commonplace during that period, Savonarola was tortured relentlessly until he confessed to these crimes. This was a rather drawn-out process because, as it would turn out, no such anti-government conspiracy actually existed. Still, Savonarola was compelled, under pain of torture, to confess that he had actually not received messages from God as he had claimed, and that he had lied about this in order to attain worldly glory for himself. The veracity of this confession is very much in doubt, seeing as how it was extracted by means of torture, and Savonarola later recanted. Nevertheless, the Florentine officials were determined to have Savonarola executed, so as a last resort, they allowed Pope Alexander VII to send two papal commissioners, Giovacchio Torriani and Francesco Ramolino, to conduct their own interrogation of the prisoners. As Savonarola awaited the arrival of the men from Rome, his jailer allowed him to write. During this period, Savonarola wrote two religious tracts that were highly significant from a theological perspective. I won't delve into the details again at the current moment, but suffice it to say that in these tracts, Savonarola expressed his belief in the doctrine of justification by faith alone, which would eventually form the basis of Protestant theology. The Papal Commission arrived in Florence on May 19th. As they rode through the city, the fact that the public had decisively turned against Savonarola was clearly evident, as the commissioners were greeted with cries of, Death to the Friar, to which Remolino replied, quote, Indeed he will die. End quote. Remolino assured the Signoria that there could be only one outcome from this trial, stating, quote, We shall all have a good bonfire. I have already reached that verdict in my heart. End quote. The next day, the commissioners set to work. Evidently, the respite from torture that Savonarola had been allotted over the past weeks had allowed him to regain much of his resolve as he resisted the initial efforts of his interrogators to extract a confession from him. Remolino quickly lost his patience with the friar, and ordered that he once more be subjected to the strappado. At the very prospect of undergoing this specific torture once more, Savonarola broke down, falling to his knees and proclaiming, quote, Now hear me, God, thou hast caught me. I confess that I have denied Christ and that I have told lies. O oh, you lords of Florence, be my witnesses here. I have denied him for fear of being tortured. If I have to suffer, I wish to suffer for the truth. What I have said... I heard from God. O God, thou art making me do penance for having denied thee under fear of torture. I deserve this. Jesus, please help me. Upon being subjected to the strappado again, Savonarola seems to have lost his composure once more. 
The transcript of his interrogation shows this, as the only coherent words he was able to utter were along the lines of, quote, Don't tear me apart. Jesus, please help me. End quote. Over the course of three sessions, Remolino reached the verdict that he had already decided upon. In his report back to the Pope, he wrote, quote, Savonarola is a heretic and a schismatic, whose vile crimes are of such a horrendous nature that I cannot even bring myself to write them down, let alone pollute my mind with the very thought of them. End quote. Now, with Remolino's report in hand, the Signoria met once more to decide on Savonarola's sentence. Being comprised entirely of Savonarola's political opponents, the Signoria was all but unanimous in calling for his execution, save for one Angolo Nicolini, who argued that it would, quote, be a crime to execute this man, for history rarely produces such a man as this. This man would not only succeed in restoring faith to the world should it ever die out, but he would disseminate the vast learning with which he is so richly endowed. For this reason, I advise that he be kept in prison, if you so choose, but I petition you to spare his life, and grant him the use of writing materials, so that the world might not be deprived of his great works to the glory of God. End quote. However, Nicolini's plea fell on deaf ears. The other men of the Signoria were dead set on Savonarola's execution. The truth of the matter was simply that the die had already been cast. Savonarola's opponents had become convinced that he had to die so that Florence could be saved. About a year and a half after the trial, the brother of the famous painter and Piagnoni sympathizer Sandro Botticelli recorded a conversation between his brother and one of Savonarola's more outspoken opponents, a Combagnacci leader named Dolfo Spini. Upon being questioned as to Savonarola's guilt, Spini made a rather damning confession to Botticelli, quote, Sandro, do you want me to tell you the truth? The truth is that we never found anything he had done wrong, neither mortal nor venal sin. If we had spared Savonarola and allowed him to return to San Marco, the people would have turned against us. They would have stuffed us into sacks and torn us to pieces. The whole thing had gone too far. We had to do it just to save our own skins. End quote. The Signoria met with the papal commissioners who gave their report. Bishop Riamolino recommended the death penalty for Savonarola and Friar Silvestro, but suggested that Friar Domenico be spared the same fate. The Florentines were hesitant to do this for fear that Savonarola's poisonous doctrines might live on with Friar Domenico if he was to be spared. Remolino, who had likely made the suggestion to effect a false display of compassion, quickly demurred, saying, quote, One little friar more or less hardly matters. Let him die too. End quote. Thereupon, all three friars were convicted as heretics and schismatics. The following morning, they were to be formally stripped of their priesthood before being handed over to the secular authorities to be hanged and burned. News of the verdict was made public immediately. That day, Landucci recorded in his diary, quote, It was decided that he should be put to death and that he should be burned alive. In the evening, a scaffold was erected in the middle of the Piazza della Signoria, and here was erected a solid piece of wood many feet high. On the aforementioned piece of wood was placed a horizontal one to make it the shape of a cross. But people noticing it said, they are going to crucify him. And when these murmurs were heard, orders were given to saw off a part of the wood so that it no longer resembled a cross. End quote. That evening, the officials of the Signoria went to Savonarola's cell to inform him that he had been condemned to die the following day. They found the friar kneeling in his dimly lit cell, no doubt in the midst of prayer. The friar offered no reply, and merely knelt back down and continued to pray. His other two companions received the news in much different ways. Friar Silvestro was in disbelief, and he begged his captors to be allowed to plead his case before the public. 
Friar Domenico had quite the opposite reaction, seeming almost enthusiastic to face death. Instead of begging for clemency, he inquired as to what form his death was to take. Upon being told that he was to be hanged and burned, he merely requested that he might be burned alive, his rationale being that if he was to die a martyr, that he might as well make the manner of his death as painful as humanly possible. Friar Domenico then wrote a final letter to the monks of San Marco, instructing them to compile Savonarola's writings in a single volume for the purposes of preserving them, which the monks dutifully did. Shortly thereafter, each of the condemned men was joined by a priest, whose primary duty was to accompany death row inmates in their final hours. The priest assigned to Savonarola was named Jacopo Nicolini, who was apparently very impressed by the quiet stoicism with which Savonarola faced his inevitable demise. Savonarola asked the priest if he might be allowed to meet with his companions for one last time to offer them some final words of advice. His request was granted, and the three friars laid eyes on each other once more, for the first time since they had all been arrested. Savonarola kept his comments to both of his companions relatively brief. He chided Friar Domenico for presuming to choose the manner of his death, and reminded him that he must accept the fate that God had proclaimed for him. Then, turning to Friar Silvestro, he said, quote, in your case, I know you wish to proclaim your innocence before the people, but I order you to put away all thought of this idea, and instead follow the example of our Lord Jesus Christ, who refrained from protesting his innocence even when he was on the cross. We must do likewise, because he is the example that we all must follow. End quote. Savonarola then imparted his blessing on the two friars before being led back to his cell. It was now very early in the morning, and Savonarola laid his head on Nicolini's lap and immediately fell into a deep slumber. Nicolini would later report that Savonarola seemed to be at peace, smiling serenely in his sleep, like one would when having a pleasant dream. Savonarola's dreams did not last long, because the morning of May 23rd dawned shortly thereafter. At daybreak, the three friars were led into the plaza of the Piazza della Signoria, their arms bound behind them. A large crowd had already assembled there to witness the day's proceedings, a crowd that was reportedly as large as the one that had gathered there to witness the trial by fire some time prior. The friars were then brought before the first of the three tribunals that would formally pass their sentences on them. The first of these was led by Benedetto Pagagnotti, the Bishop of Vasona. Ironically enough, Pagagnotti had once been a friar at San Marco and had formerly been a firm believer in Savonarola and his cause. The bishop presided over the degradation of the friars, a ritual which formally stripped them of their priesthood. Pagagnotti could not bring himself to look Savonarola in the eyes. Stumbling over the words of the declaration, he stated, quote, I separate you from the church militant and the church triumphant, end quote. The distinction between the church militant and the church triumphant was that the church militant was thought to be the church present in the world, whereas the church triumphant is defined as the church of those who are present with God in heaven. The pedantic Savonarola could not help himself when he reminded the bishop that the church triumphant was outside of his jurisdiction. After this, the three friars, now defrocked, were taken before the next tribunal, presided over by Bishop Remolino. Here, the three men were granted a plenary indulgence by Alexander VII, which was, in effect, a pardon for all their worldly sins and an absolution from punishment in purgatory. The final tribunal consisted entirely of secular authorities, who read out the sentence condemning the three men, Girolamo Savonarola, Domenico de Pescia, and Silvestro Marufi, to be hanged and burned. The sentence pronounced, the first of the condemned men, Friar Silvestro, was ushered up to the scaffold. The executioner, who was in a bit of a hurry to have the friar hanged so that he could set the friar alight, 
botched the execution. The rope by which Friar Silvestro was hanged was not drawn tight enough to kill him immediately, and he instead died slowly from strangulation rather than having his neck broken, as was typical in a properly executed hanging. Next to die was Friar Domenico, who bore an almost ecstatic expression on his face as he hurried up the ladder and was hanged in a similarly rushed manner. Then, finally, there was Savonarola himself. According to Landucci, he walked up to the scaffold muttering some sort of prayer to himself, much to the disappointment of the crowd, who were expecting him to perform some sort of miracle, or at the very least give some last words, either protesting his innocence or confessing his guilt publicly. He did neither, and died without uttering a single word aloud. The pyre beneath the hanging men was then set ablaze, their dying or dead bodies were quickly engulfed in the flames. As their bodies were quickly reduced to ash, armed guards surrounded the scaffold, preventing anyone from approaching. The Signoria was dead set on preventing any of Savonarola's remaining supporters from snatching away any of the friar's affects or body parts from the fire to be later venerated as relics. Once the crowd had dissipated, the guards shoveled the ashen remains of the executed men into carts, which were then taken to a bridge and unceremoniously dumped into the Arno River. A full-blown political persecution of the remaining Piagnoni ensued following Savonarola's execution. Bishop Remolino declared that the possession of any of Savonarola's writings was a crime punishable by excommunication, and those who still had such writings had four days to surrender them to the authorities so that they could be burned. The monastery of San Marco lost many of the rights that it had been bestowed during Savonarola's time as prior, and a sentence of exile was passed on many of the friars. Even the bell of the monastery was taken down by the authorities and melted. Anyone who was even suspected of previous association with Savonarola was barred from holding public office for life. Those who remained devoted to Savonarola and his memory were entirely forced underground. They secretly defied the ban on the friar's writings, and in the privacy of their own homes, they compiled the words that he had written or said aloud in the, over the course of his life, and composed new works in his honor, poems, songs, biographies, and the like, to keep the flame of his memory alive. They intently studied his sermons and anxiously awaited the fulfillment of his prophecies. In spite of the concerted effort made by Savonarola's executioners to prevent the recovery of anything that could possibly be venerated as a relic, Savonarola's most faithful believers still found a way. Devout Piagnoni scrambled to scrape up the ashes that had remained at the site of the execution, placing them in small snuff boxes and keeping them as objects of veneration for years to follow. Gianfresco Pico della Mirandola, the nephew of his namesake, claimed to possess a portion of Savonarola's heart, which he claimed possessed magical qualities. With their enemies thoroughly defeated, the Arabiati celebrated their victory with reckless abandon. Luca Landucci, who continued to write in his diary until the year 1516, wrote an entry about a month following Savonarola's execution, describing the atmosphere of sin and vice which pervaded in the city in the friar's absence. Quote, a citizen who was in exile from Siena was murdered by a man who wanted the reward of 1,000 florins in the middle of the marketplace at about dawn, just before the apothecary shop. Several young men had also been wounded the night before. The cause of all of this was that everyone had been indulging in a vicious life, and at night one saw swords and halberds across the city, and men gambling openly and without shame. Hell itself seemed to have been opened, and woe to him who should try to reprove vice." End quote. Even Bishop Remolino was no exception to this. He remained in Florence for about a week while he organized the confiscation of Savonarola's writings, during which time the Signoria hired prostitutes for him, with whom he spent much of his time. 
Remolino departed for Rome on May 29th, bearing in hand the report of the Signoria on the entire affair, which read in part, quote, We have discovered that he caused secrets of the confessional to be revealed to him, and that it was his purpose to excite sedition in Florence by breeding disputes among the citizens. We found this friar, or to avoid calling him either a friar or even a man, we should say this most iniquitous omnipede to be a mass of the most abominable wickedness. His disciple, Friar Domenico, dared to call God a witness in favor of his master's words and doctrines, declaring that if they were not true, that he would be content to die. Wherefore, in condemning the three to capital punishment, we arranged that this prediction should be fulfilled to the letter. The friars have been put to death in the same manner that their perfidious sedition deserved. End quote. Similar letters were dispatched to the courts of all the other Italian states, as well as those of France and Spain, all of which sent back letters voicing their approval of the friar's execution, save for France. The new king of France, the cousin of Charles VIII, Louis VII, wrote an impassioned plea to the Signoria, begging them to spare Savonarola's life. However, it arrived far too late. While Savonarola may have been dead and his memory formally damned by those in power, his political legacy would live on in many ways. Florentine politics in the post-Savonarola period retained many of the objectives that the friar himself had done so much to bring about. Domestically, this meant preventing a Medicean restoration. The Great Council, with its wide democratic mandate, was deemed necessary in order to maintain the integrity of the Republic. In the years that immediately followed Savonarola's death, the Florentine system of government remained largely unchanged until, in 1502, when the Great Council, having reached the consensus that the current system whereby the chief executive of the Republic served a term lasting only two months, was an inefficient one, instead elected one man to serve as Gonfalonier for life. The man in question was Piero Soderini. Although Soderini's older brother, Paolo, had been an open supporter of Savonarola, he himself did not identify with the Piagnoni, although he did share many of his political views with them. In 1509, Soderini would accomplish what previous Florentine governments had failed for years to do, recapturing the city of Pisa. The decisive factor in this victory was the creation of a new army consisting of conscripted civilian militiamen rather than foreign mercenaries. In terms of foreign policy, one of the top priorities of the Florentine government, second only to the recapture of Pisa, was maintaining the Republic's independence from the Pope and the Holy League. Indeed, Florence remained under constant threat from the Papal States, particularly from the Pope's overly ambitious son, Cesare Borgia. This, of course, gave the Florentines recourse to turn once more to the King of France for protection. Thus, in 1499, when King Louis VII invaded Italy to finish what his predecessor had started, Florence sided with France once more. Initial French military successes in Italy gave the Florentines a free hand to bring their war with Pisa to a decisive conclusion. But, as they would soon discover, tying their fortunes so close to those of France came with risks, and when French forces were defeated and driven from the Italian peninsula in 1512, the Republic was once again made vulnerable to the machinations of its enemies, chiefly Cardinal Giovanni de' Medici. The untimely demise of his brother, Piero de' Medici, in 1503, as described in episode 8 of this series, left the Cardinal as the effective head of the House of Medici. Pope Alexander VII had died the very same year, allowing his arch-nemesis, Cardinal Giuliano della Rovere, to assume the office of Pope under the papal name Julius II. Having already cultivated close ties to the new pope, the ambitions of Giovanni to reclaim Florence for the Medici were given the full backing of the Papal States. 
The Pope's Spanish allies also gave the cardinal command of an army of 6,000, which began to march on Florence in September 1512. The Florentines put up no armed resistance as the Medici marched back into the city at the head of their Spanish army. Soderini fled the city, and the cardinal installed his younger brother, Giuliano, as the Florentine head of state. Only a year later, Pope Julius II died, and Giovanni de' Medici was elected pope. Now styling himself as Leo X, the pope effectively ruled Florence by proxy until his death in 1521. It was during his tenure as pope that Martin Luther published the 95 Theses in 1517, thus kickstarting the Protestant Reformation and initiating a cycle of religiously motivated conflict that would engulf the European continent for over a century to come. The contest between French and Spanish ambitions in Italy continued as well, and in 1527, during the reign of a different Medici pope, Clement VII, the troops of the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V sacked the city of Rome, desecrating St. Peter's Basilica and forcing the pope into hiding. Taking advantage of the situation, the people of Florence rose in revolt and successfully expelled the Medici from the city once more, just as they had done in 1492. Florence was proclaimed a republic once again. The revived Florentine Republic had a strong undercurrent of Savonarolism to it, and for a time, the secular Republicans and Piagnoni worked together to defend the city's Republican institutions from external opponents. The new Republic would not be long for this world, however, as only two years later, forces loyal to Pope Clement VII retook the city after a brutal and protracted siege. Interestingly, this was in near-perfect accordance with Savonarola's final prophecy, which he had confided to the priest who accompanied him in his final hours. At the time, he predicted that Florence would undergo its worst tribulations to date. This would all occur in the year 1529, when a man named Clement reigned as pope. There is reason to believe, however, that this story was simply made up after the fact. All this brings us back to the protagonist of our story, Gelomo Savonarola. What is one to make of this man? Was he a retrogressively oriented religious zealot, or was he a revolutionary figure, one who sought to restore some semblance of democracy to Florence? Did he truly possess the gift of prophecy, or was he just a charlatan who managed to enthrall the people of Florence for the better part of half a decade? Regardless of the conclusions that one draws regarding the man, the fact of the matter is that Savonarola defined Florentine politics for the better part of a decade. To conclude this series, I will end with a discussion of Savonarola's legacy through the lens of perhaps the most influential thinker of this period, Niccolò Machiavelli. As I briefly mentioned in episode 9, Machiavelli was in his late 20s at the time of Savonarola's downfall. There is no evidence to suggest that the two ever met, but we do know that Machiavelli attended at least one of the friar's final sermons. In a letter he wrote to his friend, dated March 9th, 1498, Machiavelli wrote, quote, He invited all of his followers to take communion in San Marco on the day of Carnival. He said he would pray to God to give him a very clear sign if the things that he had predicted did not come from him. On the day that the new Signoria was announced on February 26th, he figured it to be more than two-thirds hostile to him. Afraid that the new government would immediately obey the Pope's brief summoning him to Rome under the penalty of an interdict, he decided, either on his own or on advice from friends, to withdraw to San Marco. Once our friar found himself in his own house, you would marvel more than a little if you heard how boldly he goes on with his sermons. Feeling himself very unsafe and believing the new signoria to be bent on doing him harm, and figuring that many citizens would be ruined along with him, he began to say many terrifying things, very believable to anyone who didn't examine them carefully. He said that God had told him that there was someone in Florence who wished to make himself a tyrant, 
and was holding secret meetings in order to bring this about. And he said that trying to drive him out to excommunicate him and to persecute him would only bring about this tyranny. But after the Signoria wrote to Rome on his behalf, he saw that he no longer had to fear his enemies in Florence. Whereas previously he only sought to unify his party by badmouthing his opponents and frighten them using the word tyrant, he no longer seeks to do that and has changed his tune. Exhorting them to unity and making no mention of their tyranny or wickedness, he tries to set them all against the supreme pontiff, saying things one might say of the most wicked man there is. And so he goes, in my judgment, adjusting to the times and coloring his lies accordingly. End quote. As we can see in this letter, at the time that these events were transpiring, Machiavelli did not hold Savonarola in particularly great esteem, viewing him as a liar and a hypocrite. In his Discourses on Livy, which is believed to have been written sometime around the year 1517, Machiavelli's opinion on Savonarola seems to have shifted somewhat with the benefit of hindsight, from disdain to a sort of begrudging admiration. In Book 1, Chapter 11 of the Discourses, Machiavelli describes how the friar managed to convince the people of Florence of the truth of his doctrine. Rather than passing too harsh a judgment on either party, he merely uses the Savonarola phenomenon as an example to prove the argument of this particular chapter. Quote, the welfare of a republic or kingdom does not consist in having a prince who governs it wisely during its lifetime, but in having one that will give it such laws that it will maintain itself even after his death. And although untutored and ignorant men are more easily persuaded to adopt new laws or new opinions, yet that does not make it impossible to persuade civilized men who claim to be enlightened. The people of Florence are far from considering themselves ignorant, and yet Brother Girolamo Savonarola succeeded in persuading them that he held converse with God. End quote. Like many modern historians, Machiavelli here seems to grapple with what I view as the central contradiction that lays at the heart of the Savonarola phenomenon. That is to say, the question of how the enlightened inhabitants of Florence seemed to all fall under the spell of this friar whose aim was to bring society back to the morals of a bygone age. As I've said before, this is a question to which there is no simple answer. Machiavelli's own assessment was as follows, quote, I will not pretend to judge whether it was true or not, but I may well say that an immense number believed it, without having seen any extraordinary manifestations that should have made them believe it, but rather it was the purity of his life, the doctrines he preached, and the subjects he selected for his discourses, that sufficed to make the people have faith in him. End quote. Machiavelli's line of thought here raises another interesting question. Why did Savonarola fail? This is something that he addresses in his other more famous work, The Prince. Specifically, in chapter 6 of the book, Machiavelli compares Savonarola to historical figures such as Moses and Theseus, albeit unfavorably. Quote, Thus it comes about that all the armed prophets have conquered, and all the unarmed ones have failed. For besides what has already been said, the character of different peoples varies, and it is easy to persuade them of a thing, but difficult to keep them in that persuasion. And so it is necessary to order things in such a way that when they no longer believe, they can be made to believe by force. Moses, Cyrus, Theseus, and Romulus would not have been able to keep their constitutions observed for very long had they been disarmed as happened in our own time with Father Girolamo Savonarola, who entirely failed in his new rules when the multitude began to disbelieve in him, and he had no means of holding fast those who believed, nor of compelling the unbelievers to believe. End quote. Speaking for myself, I find Machiavelli's explanations to be serviceable enough, especially as it regards the reasons behind Savonarola's ultimate failure. That said, I can't help but feel that the rationale he ascribes to the people of Florence in their initial acceptance of Savonarola is left somewhat wanting. 
While the earnestness of the friar's message and the virtuous example he set were definitely factors at play, I can't help but feel that he does not ascribe quite enough importance to the social and economic context in which Savonarola rose to prominence. The primary sources written in Florence at this time, at least those that I have read, reflect a profound sense of despair at the state of socioeconomic crisis that prevailed within the city. In such an environment, is it really any wonder why Savonarola, with his particular message of salvation, became quite as popular as he did? Again, this is just my opinion, and I certainly do not presume to know more about politics than the father of modern political science himself. In any event, that is about all that I have for this episode and this series. Do you, the listeners, have any thoughts or feelings on the subject of this series that you'd like to share with me? Do you have any questions about the content, or feel that something was left inadequately or inaccurately explained? Do you have any suggestions for future topics for this podcast to cover? If so, please direct these and all other inquiries to my email address, historiadramaticapod at gmail.com. Additionally, it is possible to reach me on Twitter or Facebook. Links to both sites will be available in this episode's description. If you like the show and would like to help keep it running indefinitely, as I plan to, you can support my efforts in a few different ways. You can purchase some used books from me on eBay, or you could pledge your support on Patreon. It would also be immensely helpful if you left a positive review for the show on iTunes, Spotify, or whichever podcast listening platform you prefer to use. Before signing off today, however, I'd like to say a few words by way of a conclusion. When I first began writing the script for the series back in May of 2022, I initially believed that I'd be able to cover the entire narrative in a matter of about 5 to 7 episodes. I had no idea that it would ultimately take me 11 total. Suffice it to say that this series has gone on for significantly longer than I had originally planned. Because of that, I'd like to thank you very much for bearing with me as I work to get these episodes released over the course of the past 6 months or so. It has been my great honor to be your guide on this journey into the colorful world of Renaissance Italy, as well as its dark side. Following the release of this episode, I will be taking my usual one week off before posting the first episode of the next series of the podcast. This new series will take us nearly 500 years into the future and half the globe away to Korea in the 20th century. The next series of the Perspectives in History podcast will be an in-depth look at the Korean War of 1950-1953, but in order to tell the complete story of that conflict, it is my intention to expand the frame of the narrative to cover the events leading up to the outbreak of the war, as well as those proceeding from it. At the current moment, this series is nine episodes long, meaning that it will run until early March 2024. After that point, I will be releasing another series of the podcast, the topic of which is yet to be determined, before going on hiatus for the summer and returning once again in September as per usual. Anyway, that has been quite enough housekeeping for the time being. Be sure to keep an eye out for the first episode of the Korean War series in two weeks. Until then, this has been the Perspectives in History podcast. Thank you very much for listening, as always. I'm your host, Willem Connor, signing off.